Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon. Episode 69, General Jouet, Comte d'Erlon. Before we begin, I'd like to remind all of our listeners that if they'd like to support our podcast monetarily, please go to patreon.com forward slash generals and Napoleon, where you'll find ad-free content and previews of our future episodes. If you'd like to support our podcast in other ways, please go to Instagram, Spotify, or YouTube and give us a follow over there. As always, we appreciate your support. Now, on with the show. Our good friend, Graham Callister, is on the line. Say hello, Graham. Hello. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for joining us. Um, for those of you who don't know, Graham's a, a very famous author, and he has a great book called Battle, Understanding Conflict from Hastings to Helmand, uh, published by Penn and Sword, which you can find on Amazon. And you can also find Graham on Twitter at Graham Callister. Uh, that's his handle. Uh, you can reach out to him there or give posts to him there. Uh, thanks for joining us, Graham. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit about your background? I know you're an author, but where did you study? Uh, so I did my uh, degrees in, in England and France and South Africa, um, mostly at the University of York. And I, I finished my PhD at York in 2014, um, looking at the, the period 1785 to 1815, looking at kind of policy and public opinion. Um, and from there, drifted into to Napoleonic studies. Very good. And we're going to discuss a very interesting man, uh, similar to your educational background today, uh, the Comte d'Erlon or uh, do you want to pronounce his given name? Yeah, Jean-Baptiste Rouet, the Comte d'Erlon. Okay. And um, very talented general, wouldn't you say? Yeah, very much so. One of the, maybe the, the unsung generals of Napoleon, um, and certainly one of the, the interesting characters of the period. Yeah, there's a lot of those. I just did an episode on uh, General Foy, and he was another one of those, who's kind of the unsung uh, generals. Uh, you know, the marshals get all the uh, publicity, but there are some really talented generals working under them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's dive in. Um, Derlon was born in July 1765 in uh, is it... Roms. Roms, that's right. I don't want to say Reims as I, as I read it literally. Uh, not to be confused with another future general, Antoine Drouet. What do we know of Derlon's upbringing? Um, so Jean-Baptiste Derlon, uh, uh, Drouet uh, Derlon, is born into a, a kind of family of tradesmen. Um, his antecedents are carpenters, his father's a master carpenter, so they're commoners, but they're reasonably well off. Um, he is apprenticed to be a locksmith at quite an early age, um, so not quite following in his father's footsteps, but he's going to be a, a respectable tradesman, a worthy enough profession. Um, but then in, in 1782, at the age of 17, uh, he decides he wants a bit of adventure uh, and goes and joins the army. Yeah, um, he uh the army's a basic private uh, in 1782 and is later discharged after five years of service. He then re-enters in 1792, which is basically in the midst of the French Revolution. And it seems to me that a lot of Napoleon's future generals enter the army at this time. Is that because of the opportunity to rise through the ranks based on merit or are they just looking for a job? Um, partially it might be, uh, but I think there's a lot of patriotism around at the time as well. Um, the revolution sparks off a huge sentiment in France of patriotism that isn't just for France, the country, but is for this idea of more popular government. 
and of every citizen doing their bit to support that. So in, in 1791, during peacetime, there's a huge uh, volunteering push from the government to get men into the army. And, and it's responded to with enormous enthusiasm across France. Uh, there are some problems in some areas, but there is, is huge enthusiasm. Um, in 1792, they do that again. And then, of course, when the war breaks out, uh, again, they, they send an appeal for volunteers and thousands of men join up. So there's this spirit of patriotism, uh, of, of wanting to volunteer to do one's bit for the country, as well as, you know, maybe slightly more um, personal motives of of wanting to have a sense of adventure or having a taste for military life, or indeed the prospect of promotion. Um, so a lot of those men who joined 1791, 1792 will have been swept up in this revolutionary fervor and probably at the same time thought, you know, this is my chance to, to get some excitement in life or follow my, my military inclinations. Mm, indeed. And uh, Durlon becomes a captain in 1793. So he's, he's moving up the ranks and he soon becomes an aide-de-camp to future Marshal Lefebvre. I know Marshal Soult also served under Lefebvre. It seems like the old man Lefebvre knew how to train his officers, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly seems that way. You know, he's got a, a couple of really big names who who serve under him. Um, Durlon actually mentions in his memoirs the you know, where he meets Lefebvre. Um, the two of them are both actually captains at the same time. Uh, Durlon is named captain in, in April of 1793 to a pretty ragtag bunch of volunteers, and they're posted to the same cantonment as uh, Lefebvre, who's a, another captain. And the two hit it off straight away. They become friends of the same rank. Um, but Lefebvre has this meteoric rise. Once Osh arrives at the army, uh, he appoints Lefebvre as, as adjutant general, then a general of brigade, then general of division, all within a few months. Uh, while Derlon no, remains being a captain. Mm. Um, but Derlon uh, very much looks up to Lefebvre. He says in his memoirs that uh, Lefebvre, even in these early days when he's just a captain, uh, is is showing an incessant solicitude for his soldiers. So he's looking after these soldiers. He says he has immense personal bravery. Uh, he also later says, after he's appointed Derlon as, as aide-de-camp, um, Derlon says that, that Lefebvre guided the first steps in my career with his counsels. Um, so it seems that, that Lefebvre is a bit of a mentor to his staff officers. Um, mm. He also clearly listens to them, um, which is quite interesting. You know, you expect an army to, to be giving orders, but Lefebvre encourages them to plan, to think for themselves, to make suggestions, uh, to reconnoiter and come back with a suggestion of what to do. Um, and, and Derlong tells a story uh, of how he concocted a plan to get the army across the Rhine. Uh, so this is a, you know, a, a junior staff officer, a captain, uh, who's gone to reconnoiter, who's come up with this plan to get the entire army across the river. And Lefebvre listens to him and then champions this plan to Kellerman, who adopts it. Uh, and, you know, they, they carry this out and it works. And it's this kind of mentoring, I think, that Lefebvre seems to have been quite good at. Um, he maybe wasn't the finest of Napoleon's marshals, but I think he's quite a humane man. And I, mm. I do wonder if that, that humanity and that human element does help him to nurture people like Derlon, like Soult, uh, to, to really blossom in their own right. Indeed. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that uh, unlike, say, the Duke of Wellington, who didn't seek out or need or want counsel from his junior officers, that Lefebvre kind of welcomed that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it may be a reflection that he himself had uncertainties and insecurities. Um, you know, later in his career, he certainly doesn't always succeed. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I think there's a, a humane element to Lefebvre that allows him to to nurture these officers 
um, and help their careers along. Yeah, indeed. And we'll, uh, we'll kind of come back to that point where they were close friends. Um, but in 1799, Derlon is promoted to Brigadier General and serves in the pivotal Battle of Zurich, where the French defeat the Russians under future Marshal Massena. Uh, he also serves in another major victory in 1800 at Hohenlinden under Moreau. Seems like uh, he's very talented as an officer, this Derlon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he moves through the ranks of the staff quite quickly. By February 1798, he's Lefebvre's chief of staff. Uh, he was actually meant to go to Egypt with Kleber as chief of staff, uh, but he received his orders too too late and the, the expedition had gone. So he goes back to Lefebvre um, and then is is passed over, basically, uh, when Lefebvre gives up his command. Um, uh, Derlon remains with the division um, and so on takes over. Uh, and he seems to have been really highly regarded. Um, Massena, when he takes over the army, gives him a series of semi-independent commands, uh, you know, puts him in charge of a brigade here, a division there, an outpost. Um, he uses him to reconnoiter a lot. Uh, Derlon is, is seen as a pretty solid officer. Uh, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe not a great commander at this point. He hasn't got a huge amount of experience of leading bodies of troops, uh, but he's very much seen as someone with, with a bit of tactical nous. Um, with common sense for a soldier uh, and someone who, who will do his duty. Interesting. What was uh, his personal life like? I know he got married in the 1790s. Yeah, he, he marries in 1794, um, Marianne de Russo, I believe, um, who I think may have already been his, his sister-in-law um, mm. or, or the sister of his sister-in-law. Um, but they, they seem to be happily enough married. I, I don't know a huge amount about his personal life, but they certainly have three children spread over about eight to ten years, uh, I suspect because he's away on campaigns so often. Mm -hmm. um, but they seem to have a happy enough marriage. Um, uh, she dies before him in, in 1828. Um, but, it, you know, he, he has a, a reasonably happy domestic life, although he does end up spending, as, as many officers do, spending a lot of it apart. Yeah, yeah. And uh, again, he's on the front lines in 1805 and 1806 for the major victories at Austerlitz and Jena over the Austrians, Russians, and Prussians. And in 1807, he is chief of staff to his old mentor, Lefebvre, at the successful siege of Danzig. I mean, how unprecedented that you're not only like on the field for these victories, but you're like leading men in these victories. Yeah, I mean, at this stage of the Napoleonic Wars, he, he's one of, you know, a handful of, of officers of, of general rank who are at the forefront of the fighting uh, in this this kind of seemingly unconquerable army, this series of victories. Um, he commands Bernadotte's second division in 1805, so he fights at Austerlitz. He does well there. Um, he actually misses Jena Auerstedt uh, because Bernadotte dallies for the whole day and, and doesn't arrive at either battlefield. Um, but he takes part in the pursuit. Uh, and he does well when he actually encounters the Prussians. Um, and in early 1807, when he is transferred back to be Lefebvre's chief of staff, he pretty much masterminds the fall of Danzig as well. Um, and he uh, he then becomes Lund's chief of staff as well uh, for, for Friedland. Um, and he's one of these, you know, this this group of generals, uh, which you can include you know, Davos' three immortals. Um, you can in include... Know, half a dozen who go on to big commands in the peninsula or get promoted to, to marshal later. Um, but this suite of generals who has this, this huge wave of success. And like you say, it's not just being present, but it's actually leading men into the thick of action. Um, and I suspect he really comes of age as a commander in 1805 to 7. Yeah. 
And uh, as you mentioned, after the 1807 victory at Friedland, he's famously made Count Derlon by Napoleon. Uh, and a few years later, um, this is a tricky part. He's again serving under Marshal Lefebvre and pacifying the Tyrol Rebellion. It seemed like a walkover for the French army, but it, it wasn't. Can you kind of tell us what happened there? Yeah, so this is, is kind of when Austria comes back into the war against France in 1809. Tyrol rises up um, and Marshal Lefebvre is sent with uh, a division of Bavarians to put down an uprising. So the, the area that we're talking about is around Innsbruck in Austria nowadays, uh, the Tyrol, uh, quite mountainous, uh, quite difficult terrain. Um, and the, the Tyrolese do not want the Bavarians there. They don't want the French there. They're essentially supporting Austria. Um, and Lefebvre is expected to crush the rebels quite quickly, um, but, but he has real trouble doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, he he does okay at Ekmal Lefebvre when he's fighting kind of you know in in open warfare. But then when he goes into to Tyrol, he doesn't get on well with his Bavarian troops, which doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Um, he can't really get a handle on the situation. He can't really pin down this semi-guerrilla force that he's fighting against. Um, and although he uh, you know manages to to beat them a couple of times, he he can't crush this uprising. Um, mm-hmm. Eventually, unfortunately for him, he is defeated uh, in battle uh, by the Tyrolese uh, and Napoleon loses his temper and replaces Lefebvre with with Derlon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, that must have been a hard moment for Derlon, uh, you know, to see his mentor sent packing after getting sacked by Napoleon. But now he's on the scene as commander. And how does he rise to the challenge? Yeah, it must be a bittersweet moment. You know, he's given his first independent command here, but it's at the expense of his friend and mentor, uh, Lefebvre. But uh, Derlon rises to the challenge relatively well. Um, he benefits from a couple of things that, that Lefebvre didn't. One, he gets on better with the Bavarians. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, he hasn't fallen out with them quite so much. Uh, and two, Austria has been knocked out of the war. Um, so Austria is no longer able to support this this uprising. Uh, so Delon is able to concentrate more forces against the Tyrolese, who, whose supporters are kind of drifting away. Uh, so by November, he, he basically manages to corner and crush the remaining rebels or mm-hmm. remaining resistors uh, and reimpose or impose French control over this territory. Okay. Uh, well, after that success for, for Derlon, he's uh, dispatched to the Peninsula War and serves there for several years. Um, and I know Spain and Portugal were kind of a graveyard uh, for many reputations of Napoleon's generals. How did he perform? He doesn't actually do too badly in the Peninsula. 
Um, almost every general that goes there comes out with a reputation dented or damaged in some way. Um, mm -hmm. But Durlon comes out of it having shown uh, a good degree of tactical sense, um, an ability to organize a core, uh, so, you know, a larger unit than he'd really been in charge of before. Uh, by 1813, he shows he's capable of semi-independent command. Um, he fights a couple of battles there where, you know, they, they normally come out second, um, don't do so well, but uh, he personally leads his men quite well. Um, he spends most of his time actually down with Sult in, in Andalusia um, rather than against Wellington. So he's, he's maybe helped by the fact that he doesn't encounter Wellington too frequently during his stay there. Right. Um, right. I know he famously defeats uh, British General Hill at the Battle of Maya in 1813, one of the few victories over the British in the later stages of the of the war. Yeah, absolutely. So after Victoria, um, where, where Durlon commands about a third of the French army, uh, which doesn't go so well, uh, the, the French basically launch a series of counterattacks in the Pyrenees. Um, and at one of these, Durlon leads his men forward to attack the British 2nd Division. Uh, and then you know, when the 7th Division helps them, um, Delon attacks them as well. And at the end of the day, he is left as, as you know, uh, master of the battlefield. Um, he loses more men than the British, uh, but he is left master of the field. So he shows here a degree of tactical nous. He certainly shows uh, his attacking instincts. Uh, he's a good motivator. He's a good leader. He's a good tactician. Because um, you know, levering the British out of these positions, even if you do outnumber them, is not easy. Uh, these are, are veteran British divisions. So at Maya in 1813, in July of 1813, um, he shows himself to be a good, solid commander at the very least. Absolutely. Uh, but unfortunately, as we all know, uh, it's not enough. And the uh, the British push on to Toulouse and uh, Napoleon loses Paris. So he has to abdicate in uh, April 1814. Derlon pledges allegiance to the returning Bourbon monarchy, but quickly rallies to Napoleon's flag when he returns from Elba. Now, this next part, I think it's a mountain out of a molehill, but I'll let you be the judge. Uh, in the 1815 dual battles of Ligny and Quatre Bras against the Allies, can you briefly summarize what happens to Derlon and his first corps? Derlon, in charge of, of first corps, uh, has been deputed to be part of the left of the French army. So this is the, the part of the French army given to Marshal Ney on the 15th. Um, Delon is in the second line. Rye's second corps is, is with Ney at the front. Delon is behind. On the morning of the 16th, he's given orders to close up with Ney and mm -hmm. support him. And he's marching towards the Quatrebrow battlefield when one of Napoleon's aides, uh, Le Bedoyer, arrives and says, Napoleon needs you. Now, the emperor needs your troops. Uh, and basically redirects Delon off towards the Ligny battlefield. Mm -hmm. And Delon thinks, no. If Napoleon's given this command, I best obey it. So off he right. goes. Right. And and Napoleon's winning that battle at Ligny. He just needs Derlon's corps to crush them, correct? Yeah, absolutely. This this is the idea that Napoleon just needs one more corps to come around, uh, basically crush the, the Prussians from the Prussian right, the French left, uh, and he will destroy Blucher's army. Not just beat it, but destroy it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so Derlon marches off to do this. Uh, but Marshal Ney, who has been given command of Derlon's corps the day before, as part of his left wing, he needs troops at Quatrebras. So he, when he hears what Delon's doing, is furious, sends another officer off and says, look, I'm your immediate commander. I order you back here. I need you at Quatrebras. Delon receives this message when he's a, a couple of miles from the Ligny battlefield. 
and he stops his core and he, he doesn't know what to do. Uh, he has a, a slight disagreement with his uh, his leading divisional commander, Durrett, who's who's in charge of fourth division. Um, and they decide basically what they'll do is leave fourth division and the cavalry at Lini to support the emperor and march everyone else back to Catrabra. Okay. Unfortunately, well, I mean, I don't know who's to blame here, but I'll let you finish the story in this. I guess we can assess who's to blame. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, in the event, um, Durut and Giacchino in charge of the cavalry don't do anything at Lini that's useful, and Derlon arrives at Catrabra too late to do anything there. So this entire corps of 20,000 men spend the day vacillating between two battlefields and contributing to neither. <laughs> so... Again, my original thesis is that it's it's a mountain out of a molehill because, you know, Napoleon would probably would have lost Waterloo against the Seventh Coalition anyways. But if we have to assign blame to someone for this snafu, who would it be? I, I'm going to blame Napoleon for it for the simple reason that he re redesigns his command of the army on the 15th of June by giving Ney two corps, Rise and, and Derlon's corps, and then on the 16th, he completely ignores this reorganization, summons Derlon without communicating with Ney. Um, now, it's possible that Napoleon himself was trying to communicate with Ney and that de la Bedouer, the, the staff officer, uh, exceeded his, uh, his remit in redirecting Derlon before consulting Ney. Uh, but it's the organization of the army that's at fault. And I'm afraid the book has to stop with the army commander. Um, yeah. I don't think Derlon did much wrong. Because quite simply, if you receive orders from the emperor, you don't disobey them. And if you receive orders from your immediate commander, who is saying, you know, I'm going to lose a battle without you, you, you don't disobey them. So he's put in an impossible position, perhaps. Um, maybe an unpopular thing to say that the book stops with Napoleon, but I think it does in this case. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I'd have to agree with you. Uh, I mean, now, you know, Monday morning quarterback, whatever you want to call it. Maybe he could have split 10,000 men in each direction, but or maybe he should have just picked one battlefield and been, you know, worried about the aftermath later. Uh, but yeah, it's it's tough to say Derlon did the wrong thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you, you don't disobey orders from Napoleon, so maybe he should have just committed at Lini. Uh, but equally, he's probably thinking, well, I'm going to get shot if Ney is overrun at Catrabra because I've gone walkabout. Right, right, right. Okay, well, a uh, few days after that, the famous Battle of Waterloo occurs. How does Derlon and First Corps perform? Well, Waterloo, uh, for them, um, it, they, they are designated as the, the main French attack at the start of this battle. Uh, First Corps has the biggest untouched part of the French army, 20,000 men who've barely fired a shot during this campaign. Um, they've got four full divisions of infantry, so of the two frontline corps, first and second, they've got the 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 most infantry, and so they're they're ordered in uh, for the first main attack of the day. Um, we've got the um, the the action around Rougamont, which is basically a distraction, and then Derlon is ordered in against the the Allied centre left. Um, he advances in four enormous divisional columns, uh, and these columns are in a very strange formation. It's it's eight battalions, one behind the other, each battalion in a single line of, of three ranks. Mm -hmm. uh, a very odd formation that hadn't been used before, really. And, and this, there's no clarity as to who decided on that, whether it was Dolan or Ney or Napoleon. Um, but Dolan's attack is, is a major threat to the Allies. Uh, you know, 16,000 infantry supported by a couple of thousand cavalry 
uh, by a grand battery of 60 to 80 guns. Uh, this is a bludgeon to smash the Allies out of the way, and it almost works. Yeah, our, our friend General Picton is killed, correct, during this onslaught. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the four divisions advance in echelon. The first division um, threatens La Haisante in the middle of the battlefield and then begins to push back the Allied troops at the crossroads. Second division pushes back Byland's brigade, uh, which is, is heavily outnumbered. Picton then counterattacks, drives first and second division back slightly, is only struggling to hold third division. Um, Delon at this stage is on the, the brink of a breakthrough. If 3rd Division could just keep on going, they'll push through uh, the, the thin line of Picton, who is now dead. He's been shot. He's, he's mm -hmm. gone. There's no leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, there are no infantry reserves behind them. Unfortunately, of course, as, as we know, uh, unfortunately from Delon's point of view, the Earl of Uxbridge, the Allied Cavalry Commander, then launches forward his two brigades of British Heavy Cavalry. Um, the Union Brigade, especially, who smash into these attacking infantry who are disoriented. Uh, they're, they're advancing through smoke. They've had a hard fight across the valley. Uh, they're out of alignment. They're in no position to face cavalry, and they are overrun. Yeah. And and th this attack is, is not just beaten, it's destroyed. Um, three of his divisions are routed and sent back across the valley. They lose about 5,000 men, so nigh on a third of their infantry strength goes in this attack. Uh, but it's, it's a credit to Derlon, because uh, he launches the counterattack. He goes back. He, he finds his cavalry, cavalry division. He orders them to counterattack. Uh, and that combined with a counterattack ordered by Napoleon of the Cuirassier, um, you know, drives back the British cavalry and destroys them. And Derlon there rallies his corps. Second and fourth divisions, mostly uh, some survivors of first and third. But Derlon then leads them forward again. He does manage to capture La Haisante in the middle of the battlefield. Mm -hmm. uh, he does put pressure on the, the British or Allied lines, mostly British troops by this stage, uh, with Lambert's division that's come in uh, and the remains of Picton's division. And he does support the attack of the Imperial Guard. Uh, yeah, and I don't think people realize how close, I mean, Ney and Derlon were to winning this battle. They captured Le Saint, like you said. Horse artillery was tearing up British infantry, and I think it was closer than most people realize. Yeah, absolutely. Well, while everyone looks over on the, the kind of center right of the battlefield and where the guards are um, and thinks that that's where the real battle is, um, Derlon still had the chance maybe to cut off the the British or the, the Allies rather from the, the Prussians. Uh, he could have still turned Wellington's flank. Uh, he could have you know, created gaps here to be exploited. Um, and it's a, a credit to him really that he rallies enough of his his division to keep on fighting through the day. Uh, you know, the, after this this annihilation by the cavalry early on in the afternoon, they don't give up. They come back for more. They fight mm -hmm. to the bitter end. Yeah, it's I mean several hours slog. This is a long, long battle. Uh, but as we know, uh, after the Imperial Guard attack falters, Napoleon loses Waterloo, um, and obviously is sent off to his second exile. And Derlon himself has to go in exile, correct, after Waterloo? Yeah, absolutely. He, he's one who had supported Napoleon, and not just supported Napoleon in 1815. In March of 1815, as Napoleon's coming north, Derlon actually organized an uprising in the north of France and a mutiny in the army, uh, threatening to march on Paris with his troops to overthrow mm -hmm. the Bourbons and support Napoleon. Um, so when the Bourbons come back, they see him not just as a, an everyday traitor, uh, but as one who had actively tried to take the field against them. So he's mm. a bit like Ney. If he'd been caught, 
he'd probably have been shot. Um, so he he takes himself abroad um, and and lives over in Germany for a few years uh, until eventually the Bourbons calm down and and ten years later give him an amnesty an amnesty and allow him to come back. Yeah, yeah, and I see he uh, re-enters the French military, and uh, I think he still serves now Algeria. What was his later career like? Yeah, so he's one of these French generals that comes out of the war with a decent reputation, and those reputations grow. By the 1820s and especially into the 1830s, these Napoleonic generals are being revered for what they've done. Okay, the wars might not have ended well, but they conquered everything from Lisbon to Moscow. These are heroes. So as a Bonapartist, he he doesn't really get much from the Bourbons. He's allowed to live in France, but nothing else. But after July of 1830, when there's the, the revolution that overthrows the Bourbons and puts Louis Philippe in place, Delon's honors start to come. He's made a peer of France in 1831. Um, he's given a, a military district in 1832 and is involved in actually suppressing pro-Bourbon activity. Uh, and in 1834, he is made governor of Algeria. Um, so he is seen as a revered general, as a man that, that they want to give posts to. Um, unfortunately, a, a subordinate gets defeated in Algeria in 1835, uh, and Derlon kind of takes the fall for this um, and uh, basically semi-retires after that. He's recalled and, and goes into retirement. Um, but he he goes back to command a military district, which is kind of a, a semi-honorific post, and he does that till 1843. Um, and in 1843, he's actually made a marshal of France. Yeah, and I think that's a lovely, uh, I guess, wrap to a long career. I I mean, I could argue that he could have been made one by Napoleon way before then, um, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think he, he's one of the generals who it wouldn't have been unusual had he received a baton off Napoleon. Um, you know, maybe he hadn't had quite enough independent experience, but you could say that about half a dozen others. Um, you could say that certainly about Grouchy, who's made a, a marshal in, in 1815. Uh, so for Derlon to receive the baton in 1843, I think is a, a nice touch that just shows how revered he was after the wars and, and how much his service um, you know, may, meant a lot to the French people and, and to France as a country. Yeah, indeed. And, and and as you mentioned, there were several generals that did receive the Marshal's Baton, uh, Clausel, uh, among us, a few others, um, uh, Gerard, uh, after Napoleon's downfall. Um, however, Derlon passes in 1844, the year after he gets his baton. What do you think his legacy is? I think he's seen as a, a good, solid commander, as one of, uh, you know, Napoleon's probably second tier of generals. He's not spectacular. Uh, he's not as charismatic, maybe, as Ney. Uh, he's he's not uh, a, a tactical genius like Davu. Um, he's not as outlandish as Murat. Uh, but he's in the second tier of very solid generals. He's really the kind of general, I think, that the, the imperial success was built upon. Right, um, right. I agree the, with that. Not, not the men who are flashy, but the men who do the job, who lead the divisions, um, who take them into action, and who get those battles won. Yeah, and can improvise and think on the field as he did at Waterloo to kind of rally your shattered core for another go of it is, is, you know, especially at Waterloo, which, you know, all descriptions was a depiction of hell. To, to, to organize and rally in that maelstrom is, is pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. Well, uh, thank you for that. That was fantastic, Graham. And again, um, if you guys would like to check out Graham's book, uh, Battle, Understanding Conflict from Hastings to Helmand, please go to Amazon or wherever books are sold. And Graham, I thank you for your time. That was fabulous. Thanks so much for having me.